Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my fellow creators. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast that celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. I'm your host, Sourdough, and on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by our first interior architect to the show, by the way, my good friend, Nina Hyken from Nina Hyken Design. Hello. Hey, Nina. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> Great to see you. It's been too long. It's been way too long. I just want to say that I do not know how to speak into a mic, so we'll... F- that makes two of us. All right. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Okay. It's the blind leading the blind here. <laughs> okay. We like it <laughs> Or in that my way. case, the deaf leading the, <laughs> the blind or something. How have you been? It's been too long. You've been very busy, I take it. Yep. I've been very busy. I've been blessed with a lot of projects and a lot of wonderful clients and... Oh, come on. Clients aren't wonderful. Clients are a pain in the ass. Well, but you know, if they weren't, if they didn't need me, I wouldn't have work. Yes, it is a, it is a delicate relationship. Yeah. And it's their need that makes the relationship viable. Yes. So I, you know, I've learned to actually really embrace every quirk. Have you ever fired a client? Yes. Yeah. What was that like? What were the conditions? You know, I was very passionate about the project, um, as I always am. Yes. And unfortunately, we had a setback in the beginning. There was there were some code issues mm-hmm. and some, you know, some confusion on how to proceed in getting our permits. And she felt that it was my fault, that the confusion was my fault. Mm-hmm. And and I was never forgiven for that initial uh, confusion. Yeah. So there was this underlying you know, there was this underlying frustration on her part that everything that went wrong was due to that initial sin. Yeah. And uh, we never got, we never got over it. So, you know, there's going to be mistakes on a job and forgiveness is crucial. Yeah, right. Forgiveness is really crucial. Well, and under, yeah, and I mean, right. And part of it is how savvy is the client? Yeah. around design and the process and yeah. the contact sport of it all. Yeah, and we were talking about expectation management. Yep, yep. And this was a case where I failed to pave a certain road of expectations yeah, for right, her. Right. And I failed to explain to her that when you take plans to the LA Department of Building and Safety, it is the beginning of a journey. Yeah, right. And that 
you're going to go back once, you're going to go back twice, you're going to go back three or four times because they don't always know what they need to tell you until they see the plans two or three or four times. Yeah, right. So because I hadn't had as much experience as I do now in that particular case, when the cycle started and we weren't getting what she wanted in the time frame she wanted it, she just she just broke down. Yeah. And had I prepared her better, her disappointment might have been different. Yeah. So that's one of those cases where I had a big valuable takeaway. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't blame her for her frustration, but it did prevent us from bonding and having a great working relationship. Yeah. And it's and you know, designing for somebody is so intimate. You really got to get up in their stuff. Yeah, right. You know, I want to know where you put your toothbrush. I, you know, right. I need to know how much space you need on your bedside table for your stuff. Yeah. You know, how many plugs do you need? Yeah. You know, and so if that's not fun, then the design process is just going to be a schlog. It's going to be a real <laughs> painful schlog. Well, it feels like people want to get to, you know, they want to get to the fun stuff quick, right? And the reality is the fun stuff, picking out the the furniture, picking out the colorways or, you know, what have you. I mean, that's, that is fun. Yeah. But it's, it's down the road a bit, right? Yes. I mean, like, let's uh, better understand your needs and do that deep dive of, of research because yeah. it's research, isn't it? For oh, you, totally. Yeah. I mean, one of the most exciting projects that I'm on this year—that's we're just about to install her kitchen—started um, as a code clearance issue. Okay. Um, she had been ratted out by a neighbor for having a illegal office in her garage, and there was a you know just one of those neighborly contention things. Mm-hmm. And so I was hired to help her deconstruct the office and get her through the citation clearance. Yeah. And she she's like she said, "Well, since you're an interior designer, I want to also do, you know, my kitchen and my deck and mm-hmm. my living room and the painting and and she had this huge list, but there was a giant question mark about what we'd be able to do." because we didn't know how much the citation clearance was gonna cost. So I did have, I would say, as opposed to the first example I gave you, really excellent expectation management in this case. And I said, look, we don't know what they're gonna ask us to do. Mm -hmm. We don't know what they're gonna ask us to dismantle or build. So let's break this project into phases and let's get you through phase one. Phase one is citation clearance. And let's find out how much that costs And then let's plan phase two. And we had a miraculous experience getting through phase one. We didn't have to do half the things that we thought we might have to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the city will never tell you until you're in the process. They're not going to say you have to redo this electrical or you've got to, you know, change your garage door opening or God knows what, you know, you just have to get into the process, take a deep breath and roll with it. Yeah. And we got through it. We had a great inspector. He really understood the difficulties of and the constraints of her property. And, yeah. you know, she had a very small property. And we got through phase one. And then we got to really celebrate with phase two, which is remodel the kitchen. Yes. Knock out the deck. 
Yeah, the fun stuff. The real fun stuff. Yeah. So we're in that right now. And her deck's almost done. And her kitchen's going in in two weeks. And, you know, by Day of the Dead, she'll be cooking in a new kitchen. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you there was so much in that because... You know, how how savvy a client is or isn't, you know, that's all about experience, right? And mm-hmm. like one of the experiences I know I was surprised by when uh, my wife and I were, you know, working, uh, re- remodeling our house and what have you, was how dysfunctional the workflow was with the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for example, you talked about having one inspector or implied that maybe you had one inspector on that project. When my wife and I did our house, our contractor was going nuts because the city was sitting a different inspector every time. And there was no continuity. I remember that. It was, it was maddening. Yeah. Yeah. It was maddening. Yeah. I guess for our listeners sake, we should, uh, we should in the, in the spirit of full transparency here, (laughs) (laughs) we should confess that you and I met because uh, my wife and I hired you and your partner to uh, remodel and well, to help us design and remodel our new home. Right. It was, it was an incredible job. It was an amazing project. And Nicole Clemens, uh, Nicole Kramer and I had an amazing time. Shout out Nicole. Yeah. Yeah. We had an amazing time doing that. Well, you guys were awesome and we uh, were probably less awesome, but I know we loved the process and uh, Channing and I, you know, all the time uh, are so grateful uh, for that because you guys were so different and you guys really worked hard to figure out the Venn diagram uh-huh. uh, of our, <laughs> of our home. Right. That's a great way of putting right? it too. And, and what is that overlap? Mm-hmm. And, and boy, you just knocked it out of the park. Uh, modern romance, I think was yep. the, uh, that was our the, concept. The, the concept tagline, yep. um, the North star, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So part of the challenge in this home was of course, uh, and I'll and I'll personalize that. You know, we'll just talk about this project a little bit. Not only was you know that was maddening, dealing with these different inspectors, but then you know there are so many sort of links in the value chain, the supply chain, right? And the chain is only as sh- strong as the weakest link. So it's one thing to work with a competent, uh, you know, architect or interior designer, and then a builder, but then you've got to count on manufacturers to deliver quality products. And we ordered 19 windows and, you know, we took the shipment and 50% of them were unusable because of manufacturing uh, quality, lack of quality control of the manufacturer. Yeah. And, and that we bogged down for weeks just trying to get the windows right, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. just so many moving parts. There right? are a lot of moving parts. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and usually when you have a great contractor, like we did with- Shout with out Greg. Greg. Um, Zadikoff, Greg yeah. Zadikoff. Yeah, you know, he's he's absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, a contractor like that can really facilitate and negotiate and problem solve all of, uh, you know, those aspects of the job. As, as do the designers, you know, when yes. things yes. come down yes. the pipeline. Your guys' customer service- Client service, I guess, is the way we put it, was so amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it was just fantastic. So I have a question. I'm going to go back 10 steps. Yes. So is there a difference between interior architect and an interior designer? There's a spectrum. And what do you consider yourself? I 
The most specific description of what my skill set is, is architectural interior designer. Okay. My degree is, I, I have a master's mm -hmm. in interior in architecture. Mm -hmm. We don't call ourselves interior architects because there's a, a title act where architect can only be used by landscape architects and and architect architects. So that doesn't feel fair. It's not, but it's it's one that, of those. That feels like bullshit to me. It's one of those things that has to be changed uh, by a bill. It's got to it's got to be a state law that allows uh, a certain professional to carry a certain is there a, title. Is there a is there a lobby? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Are, and they, were, the, are they working on that? Yes, they are. The yeah. American Society of Interior Designers, okay. which I am a part of, yes. a ASID is working on the Title Act because if we can legally use a certain title, then we can distinguish our skill sets based on the services we provide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's really important for the consumer population. Yep. You know, there's decorators who are incredibly good at picking window treatments mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, fabrics or couches. Putting on the candy coating. Sure. Yeah. And I'm a decorator, mm -hmm. but then there's another layer, which is design and design is much more specifically, how does this fit? How does it work? How does it lay out? How does it flow? And then another layer below that is the architectural interior design part where can I express it in a drawing? Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. Mm -hmm. Can I present what this concept is? in a, a pictorial form that becomes a contract that the contractor can then execute. Yes. A decorator typically doesn't necessarily know how to draw. I, I don't want to diss decorators who do know how to draw, but it's it's typically not part of their work scope. Yeah, for sure. And um, some people who call themselves designers really are much more decorators. So it really goes from decorator to interior designer to architectural interior designer. That's mm -hmm. kind of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm soup to nuts. I do sure, it all. Sure. Yeah. I mean, on a, yeah. <laughs> on a more cynical note, mm. it just feels like, you know, in, interior architects can charge more than interior designers you know what right I mean? like it sounds very fancy yes it, yeah. yeah and yeah. and you are definitely if you're hiring somebody with that you know level of training mm -hmm. you're basically getting someone who can do a really wide scope of you know uh, services for your project yes and and then it, it depends on what your project needs. You know, sometimes sure. you're in a situation where you just want to fix up your office. Yeah. And you don't need all of that. Sometimes, you know, like you and I, we designed this this desk we did, together. Yes. So that furniture design is something mm -hmm. that anyone from a decorator to an interior architect could do. Yeah. Architects do a lot of furniture. Yeah. But again, can can you draw it? Can you model it? Can you convey how it should be built? That's yeah. more architectural interior design mm -hmm. than than it is, or you know, really, it's furniture design. Mm -hmm. But it has to be transmitted in yeah. some way, right? Not necessarily just verbally. Well, one of the th cool things that I've always appreciated about about you in particular, and then your profession level up, is is the what seems to me to be an art form that requires a really important balance between the right and the left brain. 
Well, thank you. That's that's kind of my favorite part of interior design. Yeah. Something I learned in school, which has served me incredibly well, uh, I learned from David Alvarez, my Studio 3 professor. Shout out uh, David. Yeah, shout out David Alvarez, who has an architecture practice on the West Side. He would always say to us, are you designing or are you selecting? And he did not want us to be selectors. Sure, he was like, don't be a selector. Why is that table in your project? Why is that window where it is? Why is that wall where it is? Yes, yes. And he was, he was very derisive of the whole idea of just picking and choosing. Yeah. The alternative that he offered us was concept-driven design. And he insisted that we come up with concepts that serve the program yes. and that drive the program. And that's what we applied to your project, yes. which made it work so well. And, and I love the Venn diagram concept because that's that's really what it is, especially when you're working with, you know, a married couple or a family, yeah. you've really got to Venn diagram the whole thing and find that center sweet spot where everyone's needs are touched on. Yeah. And concept-driven design does that really well mm -hmm. because you've, you've taken an assessment of the character and the needs of each person mm -hmm. and brought it in mm -hmm. into play. Sure. Um, right now, um, the client who is in the happy phase two and we're doing her kitchen, she lives her alone and she has a small um, cabin, like about an 850 square foot place up in the hills. And to make sure that the thread underlying all of our design comes together, I've chosen the concept English Rose. Mm because that's who she is mm. and she's really soft and she's delicate and she has romantic taste and a, a lot of her pieces are you know english country furniture pieces mm -hmm. so english rose it's it's there's going to be pinks and there's going to be a little bit of this english vibe but it's a cabin so yeah we're not ignoring that right but Everything now, like the outside is going to be those English country cottage colors. And we're not trying to do something edgy or crazy. We're just going for softness and beauty and comfort. And it's making her really happy. Yeah. And that's what design should do. It yes. should make people happy. Well, you know, it feels like concept design is driven, it should be driven, right, by a strategy that you're confident will achieve your objectives, right? So defining what the objectives are for a client, what is happiness to them, what's going to make them happy, those kinds of things. What is what is the criteria, success criteria, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you know you've been successful? Yeah. You know, and, and well, you know you've been successful because you achieved your objectives, and, but you, if you don't clarify what those objectives are, right? And so all of that work you guys did with us Right to understand what success looked like, and then once we had alignment around expectation, mm -hmm. right, then you were able to then come back and say, "Oh, okay, well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna apply these strategies to acquire, you know, these mood boards and these ideas and mm -hmm. these concepts, and you know, and it was a an, uh, a collaborative, very collaborative process." Yes. 
but but what I, I call it consultative design mm-hmm. or consultative sales, like yes. understanding your client, understanding what their wants and needs are and yes. adhering to that. Yeah. You know, you were talking about your mentor who was saying, don't be a selector, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, design. You know, I've often said that I feel like design is thinking personified. Mm-hmm. And so good design is good thinking personified yeah. and bad design is bad thinking personified. So where are you on that spectrum? I would hope that I'm super, well, I didn't super mean personal. You. <laughs> <laughs> I just meant generally, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot right. of, because it comes from the client. Like I remember, you know, bad clients often don't give a shit about the strategy part. They right. just want the problem R- to be solved. Right. And, yeah. Right. Well, it, you know, it's interesting. You know, there are superstar designers who, if you're hiring them, you're hiring them to create their vibe. Yes. You know, yes. and, you know, that would be, you know. You know what you're getting. Sure. With like right. Mario Buada in, 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 in New York, he's famous for layering super cabbage rose pattern mm-hmm. things. And, um, and he does it. In, with staggering skill it's he's he's quite amazing but you're not going to get a minimalist design from that guy yeah you know and if you have a client who you know wants some zen he's not your designer yeah you know if you want something edgy and sexy and a little bit in your face and you're in los angeles and you've you've got the you know the wherewithal you might go to kelly worsler and right. you know get something from her you know and she's got an amazing, you know, language, mm-hmm, design mm-hmm, language. Yeah. I may at some point in my career be, become, I may ha- end up with a language like that. But today my language is the client. Like mm. that's really mm. where I'm at. Mm. I am at who are you? It's a bespoke solution. Yes. I mean, you're creating custom yes. cut to fit. Completely. Yeah. Completely. And that's what, that is actually what floats my boat more than anything else is being able to come in and assess the need and find the solution. Yeah. I I love doing that. I think that's like the that's the best part of design. So, you know, whether we were clearing the citation in phase 1 and doing all of this strategy and figuring out what the most affordable work pathway would be to get that stuff done or whether we were sourcing her kitchen cabinets, that's all part of the same thing. It's Here's our design is solving problems. So it's here's a problem. What's our most elegant solution? Here's a different problem. What's our most elegant solution? Over and over and over again. And it's solutions to to make life easier for the client. Yes. In in whatever way that ends up, you yes. know, unfolding. That's that's my jam. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like your jam. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, um, no, it's, 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 I mean, being a professional creative, you know, uh, I guess, um, whether you're an interior architect, interior designer, or a painter, or a graphic designer, or a dancer, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, you know, you, it, it, you're working in, um, in an economy, right? Um, buyers and sellers, uh, supply and demand, and you can't pick your, your clients. I mean, you can, and then they, they, maybe you're at a point in your career where you can be more selective with your clients and, you know, find those clients that are more savvy, that are going to be more fun to work with. You don't have to, the learning curve for them is not, 
you know, so steep. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've gotten to a place in your career where you can be more selective? In a sense. Yeah. And the sense is this. I can tell pretty quickly if we're a good match or not. Mm. And that's the most important thing to me. Yeah. You know, I want to, you know, it's it's a relationship and it's a really intimate relationship. So I want it to, to be fun mm-hmm. and I want it to be a good match. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing not to take the job if it's not a good match. Yeah. You know, it won't serve the client if I'm not their girl, you know, yeah, it, right. just, it just won't. Shared values. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And we need to be able to enjoy each other's company. Right. You know? Well, it's a marriage, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we better, uh, if we're going to get married, let's date a while and yeah. let's make sure we can stand each other because we're going to be together for a while. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, a great example of that is, you know, um, I'm up at the cabin. We're supposed to have a meeting with the contractor. He's running late. Everyone's really tense because everyone's on different timelines and both the client and I were starting to stress out because our meeting was pushed like 45 minutes and we we both saw our days dominoing into hell. Yeah, right. And I was like, well, this isn't how I want to live. Yeah. So I just looked at her and I said, you know, we do have fun. And she's like, yeah, we do. I said, so let's just set aside our entire agenda for this meeting and walk around your house and talk about what you want. Yeah. And we ended up having this spontaneous just walk around, imagine, plan, dream sort of meeting. And suddenly the 45 minutes was gone. Yeah. The contractor showed up and everything was back on track. And we felt like we hadn't lost anything. Right. right. And it was because we like each other. Yeah. You right, know, and right. and play has to be like the fundamental modality mm. for all of this, mm-hmm. you know? And mm. I, I think, I don't know why Rothko just popped in my mind, but, you know, when I look at a Rothko painting, I feel this sense of play. Like he seemed, I don't know him, I don't know like the back story of his work at all really, but he did seem to really love color, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... I heard something about his intention with the paintings where you're supposed to sit in front of them for a long time and let your eye just go up, traveling up and down Mm -hmm. the the transitions of those colors. Mm -hmm. Because there's, from what I remember being told, there, he painted emotion into those colors. Yeah, sure. And so, so the movement through the color, uh, clouds mm-hmm. is moving through different emotions. Mm. So there's nothing more playful than that, yeah. you know, or the way Matisse did those big gestural flowers and, you know, dancing figures. And, you know, there's just, you know, or, you know, Basquiat's graffiti or whatever it is, mm. you know, there's a lot of play. In, mm. you know, there's play in David Hockney's colors. Like, mm. oh God, mm. those colors. Mm. You know, I'm a, I'm, color is probably one of my favorite aspects of design. And, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to infuse really, really fun color into a project where it's appropriate. You know, sometimes, you know, things cannot be neon yellow or, you know, electric pink, but <laughs> right, right. it's really good when they can. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, have you ever had a client who's colorblind? 
I haven't. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. but that might be an opportunity. Yes, <laughs> very much so. I would love that. Yeah. You know, because then it's about shades. Right. 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 Then it's about yeah. value. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. and it can be tonal and right. subtle and. Yeah. So if you yeah. had to if you had to shift gears uh, tomorrow, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know right now your business model, your business strategy is is very client driven, mm-hmm. right? like you're 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 creating bespoke solutions. Mm-hmm. But if tomorrow your business model changed and it was all about hiring Nina to do what Nina does because Nina's design language is just in great demand. Mm-hmm. What would your design language be? It would be color based. Yeah. It absolutely would be color based. It would be color and it would really be about surface materials. Mm. Because surface materials create the container that we're in. You know, mm-hmm. we're in this room that has this awesome deep gray on the walls and you know, and the windows bring in a certain kind of light. So my my most fundamental design aesthetic is what color is this and how does it feel to the touch mm-hmm. and the and the eye? Yeah. So I like to create spaces that have a really, really beautiful feeling in that mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I want I want it to feel sexy, mm. you know, to the feet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, right. uh, you know, and the eye. Yeah. And that's, that's what I, that would be definitely be a dream path for my career. Um, when I was um, just entering design school, I was doing some vision boarding about where I wanted my career to go. An international color consultant was mm. the, was the title that mm-hmm. I came up with for mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw myself doing, magenta glowing airport terminals. I want to fly into that right? airport. Like, yes. you know, you get off a plane and you step into the terminal and it's just this giant glowing magenta cocoon. Mm. Like, how about the By the ch- way, I the think I, I, I think there. there was I think there was such a cocoon at Burning Man this fall, but that's a whole oh, other story. Oh, that's that's <laughs> I've got to make it to Burning Man one of these You years. do have to make it to Burning Man. I uh, I'm not one of those folks that are going to be like annoying about like you know oh Burning Man this Burning it, Man that yeah. but as a as a creative professional uh-huh. it, it it should be a requirement. Yep. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think no. maybe this coming year might be the year. Good. Well, you know? we'll talk more about that because okay. uh, I, I my buddy's camp might be a good place for you to start. Okay. But our listeners do not. They've heard me talk enough about Burning Man. Okay. They don't need to, you know. But yeah. um, but we could talk about color cocoons. Yes, color for, cocoons. For, this is this is the concept for your camp at Burning Man. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, and I, I learned quite a while back, and I can't remember the source, that in certain um, psychiatric institutions, oh, I remember where I learned this. I learned this from Judith Corona, my color theory teacher. In institutions, sometimes they have a room that is the color of Pepto-Bismol, that pink, that very specific pink. Because apparently, if you are placed in such a room because you're having a stress incident, yeah. that color will actually take you sure. down to neutral. Sure. So Pepto-Bismol pink as a chill factor. Yeah, right. You know, not only your insides, but your outsides too. <laughs> <laughs> 
the whole person. The whole person. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, that gets into color theory. I love mm-hmm. this idea that you would be this international color consultant. Totally. I mean, that sounds like a pretty cool gig. Right? Yeah. Is that is that what, you know, when you retire, is that what you're going to retire into? I, you know, I'd love to retire. Yeah. I, I mean, out of that, I mean, I see like the effectiveness of color, like like a um, a pro bono project, for example, mm. that I'd love to do with color mm. is there's a lot of there's a lot of writing and a lot of theory that I think is very valid about um, neighborhoods and communities that are distressed or blighted mm-hmm. contributing to violence and crime. Mm-hmm. And what if there was a grant to take an entire block? And help that entire block get all the trash out of the front yards, paint the facade of every house, just like the painted ladies in San Francisco. Yeah, right. So you had, you know, when you are in that painted lady um, neighborhood of San Francisco and you see a pink one and a blue one and a coral one and a pale green one and then another sky blue one and a violet one, your heart actually responds to that mm. it feels better sure you feel valued yes and if if you stepped out of your door in your neighborhood in your underserved community mm-hmm. and every house on the block was beautiful mm. maybe you wouldn't feel so irritated yeah maybe you'd feel more supported yeah right. maybe you feel you would feel like you had a little more of a shot, yep. you know, and mm-hmm. that's that's an application of design that I know that there are some color innovators out there doing that mm-hmm. and and getting grants mm-hmm. to to do that. But that's like that's a major project that I would love to see happen as a a, a study in how positive community oriented design can affect safety of neighborhoods. Sure. You know. Well, I mean, part of what you're getting at is this idea of of, the, of, of how public art can be used, mm-hmm. right, for the public good. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I and and we've always known, right, that historically speaking, I guess tip of the spear of gentrification was the artists who, you know, you know, unintentional, mm-hmm. of course. But, you know, they moved into the plighted area of town mm-hmm. because it was all they could afford. And typically big spaces, their studios, you know, they could build, set up studios. Mm-hmm. They could afford the space. Those artist studios started to, you know, populate that little area. Eventually there was a coffee shop, groovy little coffee shop, groovy little resale shop, groovy little underground bar. Next thing you know, a few galleries, gallery openings. Next thing you know, it's the hip, trendy part of town. And then eventually, you know, money comes in, rents go up, and the artists move out, right? Yep. That's the historical That's loop the of, cycle. Right? And, yeah. and that was happening naturally, organically, if you will. But now, of course, real estate developers are hip to this in a big way. And they're paying, I hope, well, I hope mm-hmm. some aren't paying. Uh, some are paying, I guess, uh, decent money to artists, but but they're intentionally hiring artists to come and put up public art, street mm-hmm. murals on their buildings 
or in their neighborhoods to drive up value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Wynwood District in Miami is is a classic example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're, I mean, what you're talking about is already happening, but maybe with not the the goodwill. Yeah, you know, definitely with a, with a different objective. Yeah, right. You know, right. I just, I would just, you know, I used to be an elementary school teacher. and I did not know this. Yeah. Fun fact. Yeah, that was my first career. Oh my god! So you're this is your second career. This then. is my second career. Could you, Smarty Pants? I already knew you were Smarty Pants, but yeah. like, wow. So okay, I don't want to distract. I no, want to go back a, to that though. That's, that's okay. amazing. What grade? Yeah. Tell me quick. I taught K one two. Oh my goodness. Okay, we're gonna come back to that. Finish. Yeah. Uh, finish your thought. Gosh, I don't even know where I was going with all that. Oh, I was gonna say yeah. In in teaching for LA Unified and being in you know under you know like underserved communities yeah. constantly, yeah. you know, um, I taught down at Vermont and Olympic. I, I, mm-hmm. I taught at Mitchell Terrena street in Silver Lake before, yeah. before Silver Lake had become Silver Lake. Yeah. Right. And you know, the families are poor Yeah, and they live in really small spaces yeah. and they don't have, you know, the time or the resources to, you know, beautify their front yard, right, you right. know, and, and, and yet, one of the things that I noticed about the kids over and over again, and this was one of the earliest seeds in my becoming an interior designer, is that they valued the the pristine organization and the clarity and the 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 beauty of the classroom. You know, if you were if you were a kid in a classroom that was well done, you talked about it like the kids on the uh, you know they you would hear the kids on the playground talking about well in my classroom we have this bulletin board and yes. you know we have this you know castle center and we have we have the special reading corner and we have you know yeah. and the teachers and we've got the iguana yeah right. and 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 all of that yeah. is actually teachers doing interior design right, right. you know it's under the name of classroom planning sure. but it's interior design mm-hmm. and it's all for the client who's the kid yep and um i noticed at a certain point in my career that i obsessively rearranged the furniture i i could not stop rearranging the furniture right, i right. was always looking for a slightly better layout yeah. how is that, <laughs> why is the the feng shui so uh uh you know uh, challenging sometimes oh well you know because you're trying to shoehorn at that point i had 35 kindergartners that i was trying to <laughs> shoehorn into you yeah. know like a 30 by 30 classroom right, it was right. Yeah. Good luck. Mission impossible. (laughs) Right. Right. So, Uh, well, so the design language Mm -hmm. that you talked about, right? Um, Surface materials. Yeah. Right. I love it because, of course, I want to be rubbed the right way. Yes. (laughs) You know, we all do. Right. right? I mean, you talk about sexy under the feet. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you want to be comfortable. You want to be, you want to feel good. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, but I'm also wondering, like, and I know these are specialties that may not necessarily be tools in your toolbox. I don't know, but to, you know, how far does that go? You know, like to what extent does, cause you know, you're talking about materials and touch. So, mm-hmm. you know, the senses, the five senses, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so to what extent is, do we begin to include the other senses? So for example, you know, how a house or room 
smells or mm-hmm. how it sounds you know yeah. how does how do the sonics play into this how do the how does the how do the aromas play into this well i yeah. think you could go i think you could take it all the way yeah absolutely and i'm i'm really big on i have a little diffuser and i use aromatherapy mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. i love it and yeah. you know i've got lavender or cinnamon or eucalyptus going yeah. you know something mm-hmm. and Houses that have fountains mm, in the front mm, mm. or in the back so that you feel, mm-hmm. you, you hear water playing. That's a big thing in feng shui is, you know, which I'm not an expert in at all, but there is a water corner. There's an earth, there's a wood corner. There's a fire corner, you know, there's a money thing. There's like, don't have the stairway directly meeting the front door because your money is going to spill out of your house. Yeah. You know, there's all that that stuff. So, I mean- in in a really really thorough sophisticated layered design you could you could go all the way absolutely you know one of the things they they talked about in my design program was sighting and sighting is the the skill set of making sure that the way the property the project is oriented on the property is optimal yes where the light comes in where the function of this room is best in the east and you know versus something for the west yeah. you know you know all of that the sighting is super important um there are architects that will camp out on a property for for weeks sure to to get a sense of the sighting sure. and how the sun and the wind yep. play on that property yep. b- before they start figuring out where the front door is going to go yeah yeah, uh, that that level of thoughtfulness, right, is something that I know I appreciate. You know, it is amazing to me. Um, everybody's different, right? Whatever spins your prop, yep. <laughs> you know, as they say. Yeah. But you know, would could could ban if if arts edu- if if design thinking in art education and whatever were taught you know, from kindergarten up, mm-hmm. you know, as is math or, or, you know, English or whatever, you know, would, would our lifestyle, would our culture be more thoughtful and be more designed? Because if people don't value it, mm-hmm. right, it doesn't get done, right? right? So, it's amazing to me how, I don't know, how bad design thrives, yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. And, and there's a lot of development happening in L.A., you know, houses and things. And it just feels like we're going through this pandemic of of McMansions. Yep. And, you know, thoughtless kind of design, you know, trying to get as much square footage. Right. You know, one of my pet peeves is in going into a house is wasted space or, Mm -hmm. or, or wasted energy. Yes. Right. Like high ceilings that go to nowhere, you know, what does that mean for upkeep and maintenance? How the mm-hmm. hell do you clean those windows way up there, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? Yep. And so as a professional interior architect, interior designer, like what are some of your pet peeves that you're seeing right now uh, where you, it makes you scratch your head going, God, you know, like I wish I could fix that. Lot lines. Building to the lot line drives me crazy yeah. because I believe that buildings need to breathe Yeah. because people need to breathe. Yeah. So if if you were if if a builder was willing to sacrifice a certain amount of square footage to some open green space surrounding a property there'd be more breath 
around that entire project. Yeah. So uh, anyone walking by the project or driving past it would feel that breath and it would be transmitted and there'd be a collective reduction in stress, maybe maybe infinitesimal, but it's there. Mm. You know, there, it is documented that open green space reduces public stress. Sure. So, you know, have pocket parks. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a little bit of land usually around every freeway on-ramp and off-ramp. And um, in my old neighborhood in Hollywood, there's a very, very strong Hollywood, uh, the Hollydale community. Mm -hmm. It's a very amazing uh, neighborhood organization. They got a pocket park made in their version of that triangle of land. Mm -hmm. And now when I drive by that old neighborhood and I see that, I can just feel my shoulders dropping mm -hmm. down. So that's a big thing for me is, yeah. is build, like, let's not build to the lot line. We don't need those extra, yeah. you know, like a hundred square feet is not necessarily a make it or break it thing. And if you design the interior correctly, it really isn't. Right. So that's one thing. Nothing else is just jumping off right now, but I, I do think like in... In commercial um, places like coffee houses, you know, there should always be a place to stand or sit outside the place. Yeah, you right. know, like we should we should always, gathering spaces are yeah. really important in commercial development. Over in Atwater Village, there's one particularly amazing spot where the sidewalk is like triple deep, and the couple. Um, Restaurants and coffee houses right adjacent to that piece of sidewalk are able to put out a number of cafe tables. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a miniature uh, European town square. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Like just a little bit of real estate. Mm -hmm. So could we have bigger? Oh, that's a huge civic pet peeve is where are the sidewalks? Yeah. Let's encourage walking. Let's we, en don't, we don't walk in LA though, Nina. Yeah, yeah some of us don't. <laughs> if we had sidewalks, maybe yeah, we if would. If we right? had more sidewalks. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. sidewalks, pooling and gathering spaces. There's there's actually a whole study of that's called placemaking. Mm -hmm. And it's about how certain, the, the same space with just a few tweaks um, a little bit of different hardscape can become an actual place mm. as opposed to a nothing, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, and people gravitate to places, a coffee house that has, you know, that extra triangle of real estate in front of it can be really successful. Mm -hmm. Whereas the one with a really skinny strip in front of it, people are just going to zoom past it. And there's not that that lingering doesn't happen. That inspiration to stop for 15 minutes and have a cup of coffee doesn't happen, you right, know. And right. that should happen in our own homes too. Yeah, yeah. We we should have lingering, you know. Lingering yeah. is good. Well, lingering is good, mm -hmm. and and um, hopefully we'll get back there. Yeah. Right. It feels like maybe at one time the idea of lingering and when I, uh, you know, I'll include the family dinner, mm -hmm. right? Like yes. families used to come together for dinner. Yep. I don't think we do that as much anymore. No. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, the lot line thing, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I want, because it gets back to the feng shui thing too, positive, negative space, like letting the energy mm -hmm. flow freely mm -hmm. and in a thoughtful way, mm -hmm. but also just being somebody that appreciates the out out of doors mm -hmm. um i want the you know the flow the indoor outdoor flow 
to be part of the overall experience of the of the property. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I would argue, uh, probably incorrectly, but I would argue that ultimately over time, uh, a house that is designed more thoughtfully that way, it might be less square footage, yes. but it's going to hold its value or, or you're going to make that value or yeah. that money up because, you know, people are willing to pay a premium, I mm-hmm. think, for that kind of thoughtful design. Oh, yeah. Ultimately. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I just recently read an article on why Japan is so clean. And mm. uh, it was just this really mm. interesting, you know, article, you know, it, it was a clickbait, but it was yeah. good clickbait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but the, the bottom line is that all Japanese school children are made to clean up their own environments. Yes. They all have tasks. Yes. Every day. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. So they're much less likely to disregard the environment. Yes. Because from an early age, they're made right. to be responsible By for By the it. way, this proves this proves <laughs> uh, a point that I've been trying to make, you know, vis-a-vis the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. Um because we want to politicize it. We want to, you know, make it about causality, mm-hmm. you know, uh, do humans impact climate change, except, you know, like mm-hmm. we get bogged down in the weeds. Right. And I've just said for a long time now, like, like you don't overcomplicate it. Mom said, clean your room. Mom said, pick up after yourself. Mom said, keep the house clean. That's all this is. That's about keeping our planet clean and tidy yes. because that's what mom said. And because yes. it's the right thing to do. Yes. It's our home. It's where we live. It's where we sleep. That's right. You know, give me a fucking break. Who gives a shit whether or not, you know, man causes, of course, man causes, you know, litter. Yes. <laughs> you know, like how did yeah. the litter get there otherwise? Right. Anyway, I don't mean to right. get in no, on, but, but I love that story. Oh, that yeah, sort of because if, if, you, if you spent your grade school years uh, with regular shifts, picking up the trash on the playground or washing out the sinks in the restrooms or doing the things that these kids actually have to do, mm. then when you go to a public restroom, you're not yes. going to leave your paper towel on the yeah. on the on the counter. Yeah, you're going to put it because somebody's going to have to pick that up. Yeah. and and we are a little, particularly I think in America, we're a little bit disconnected from how things get done and totally we don't know where our food comes from no. we don't know where our bottled water comes from like Mm-mm. yeah Mm-mm. and and so it's you know in in my apartment building you know we have the blue can and people throw their recycling in it but they throw it in there in a plastic garbage bag <laughs> which actually contaminates the entire can so the entire can can't be recycled because there's a plastic bag in there. And if you go on the LA um, uh, DWP website and, and read about the garbage protocols, you'll learn that if any blue can has uh, anything in it that contaminates it, the entire can is just diverted from the recycling stream because they don't have time yeah, to pick sort it, it up. They don't yeah. have time to pick it apart. Right, right. So, I I wrestle with with being the preacher in yeah. the building. I don't like really. Well, I would argue that, yeah. um, and this, of course, you know, <laughs> would take uh, a major movement to ever get enacted. But I would argue that um, 
the uh, brands and the manufacturers have to be responsible for the entire life cycle of their package. Well, that would be know, incredible. Right. Yeah. Like if you put it into the world, then you then you have to deal with it. You yes. Know, if you, you know, so that's going to force them, right, to innovate in ways yeah. of minimizing their packaging and so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But there's, there's a brilliant book about that yeah. called Cradle to Cradle. Right. Bill, and I'm blanking on his last name, but he we studied him in in design school and the whole cradle to cradle movement where just like what you said you bring something into the world what's its first life cycle what's its second life cycle yeah what's its third life cycle right, right. you know and it, that it shouldn't be a cradle to grave because we are right now essentially a cradle to grave society yeah where we make something and it's going to die yeah right. and it's going to just land in the dirt mm-hmm I would, I would love, it's a huge part of design, you yeah. know, and, and a lot of packaging companies are working very hard to make their products consumable, mm. compostable, mm. you know, biodegradable, mm. you know, so there is effort, yeah, you know. for sure. There's, there's good effort out there, a lot of good intention. Yeah, I wish there was more effort, though, in designing houses that don't look so homogenized. Yeah. Like, is that another uh, thing that I know it bugs the hell out of me? It feels like I'm driving around all over the place and yeah. all the houses look the same. Well, what's that about? You know, well, it's interesting. Every person who's getting a house built has a different aesthetic and doesn't feel like it around here. You know, <laughs> it feels like it's all the same. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, but, but this, you know, there are, there are certain neighborhoods where there was a development. Yeah. And a developer came in and said, I'm going to build two dozen houses and they're going to be a variation on this plan. Yes. And there's something, honestly, I think there's something kind of cool about that. Yes. Like there are, there are so many neighborhoods in, in Hollywood and East Hollywood that are just rich with craftsman bungalows. Right. You know, my family owns a craftsman, a Sears craftsman kit house. That's amazing. 1913. You know, so cool. it's a tiny little thing, yeah. and um, and it's really cool. And sadly, the craftsman kit that was next to us got raised. Now it's going to be right. three quasi Mediterranean townhouses. I have right. I have to ask you a question. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, silly, stupid question, but why is it called raising when it's really, you know, you know, the knocking down. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think raise is a pretty cool word because I, what I see when I say the word raise, I see a giant like machine claw yeah. just coming in and scraping, scraping something right, well, right that's off the, the, the Why earth. do we call it raise when it's scraping? You know? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't yeah know. Well, scrape, you know, yeah. okay. you could call it scraping. Yeah. And I, that would be pretty legit. But that's uh, sad. Uh, it is. That, that uh, it and, is. You know, and, and, and not, I mean, when Channing and I mm-hmm. were looking for homes, because mm-hmm. LA, it's, it's all about what have you done for me lately, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, you know, uh, everywhere. But I hate the fact that, you know, so much of architectural history gets lost in the name of progress or, you know, and, mm-hmm. and these kind of iconic homes mm-hmm. or what have you. But uh, when we were looking for this place so many years ago, uh, we happened to 
uh, look at a house that we, uh, the house wasn't, you know, I mean, the house was interesting because it was very unusual for LA. It was a uh, well, what I call kind of a Nebraska farmhouse mm-hmm. kind of style, mm-hmm. but it was um, the lot was was fantastic. It was like an acre lot, which was like unheard of, mm-hmm. um, and we loved it. Ultimately, we didn't get it. Um, I think for good reason, but um, it turned out it was it happened to be owned by Tim Conway, the comic. Yeah, uh, may he rest in peace. And so we lost it to a developer. Oh. Who scraped it? Yep, and built a eight nine million dollar stone uh, uh, mansion, I guess, right. on the property. That then it was a spec home. Mm-hmm. It sat on the market. It just sold apparently. So what is that? Five six years? Right. That this thing was just sitting there. Right. See, that's that kind of development needs a little more guidance and oversight than yeah. it seems to have. I I don't know what, what goes behind that or how projects like that get pushed through, especially when there's a housing shortage yes. and and historical character is is something that cannot be like regenerated once it's gone in yeah, a place. It's, right. gone, it's gone. You know? And you know the neighborhood that that our my family's little craftsman is in is you know you can't stop change it's just going to happen yeah. you know but most of the people like when when my when my parents bought that place in the mid 80s it was not a popular neighborhood and it was very very run down and and uh and mostly renters and over the last 30 years it has turned into a vibrant family-centered neighborhood. They have a Halloweeny every year with like all the little toddlers mm-hmm. parading up and down the street. 30 years ago, it was, you know, it was a, a couple of scraggly dudes with guitars that you weren't sure you wanted to be friends with. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So what would you, what advice would you give your younger self? I mean, for those younger listeners out there who maybe aspire to you know, look into interior architecture, interior design as a career path. I mean, what what would you say to them and, and what advice would you give to your younger self? The very first thing I would say is take the leap. Mm. Just do it. Just go for it. Whatever your impulse is to what, if you have an impulse to do a certain kind of work, mm-hmm. just figure out how to do that work. Mm-hmm. You know, from, from a fairly early age, I knew I loved to you know, strip window moldings and repaint them and, you know, make curtains out of Japanese rice paper and just do weird stuff like that. Mm. And for some reason, I just didn't think that was sensible. So I got a, you know, I got a California teaching credential instead. And it wasn't that that wasn't valuable, but it really wasn't my calling. And so I didn't listen to the little voice that said, I want to play with paper. I want to play with paint. I want to, you know, I want to go to Chinatown and buy a thousand white cups and glue them to the wall. You know, like I had those impulses and I just didn't listen. Yeah. So take the leap and listen. Was it not practical? Was it like, and if some of this also comes and I, 
you know, mm-hmm. don't know your parents. Yeah. And I, you know, but I, I know my parents and, you know, being from the Midwest, yeah. I mean, this idea of getting a real job yeah. was, uh, was, was very, very uh, prevalent. Yeah. So in your world, as you were pondering that, was being a teacher just more practical? Like, why did you? Yeah, it was practical. Yeah. And, and I was, an, I was, you know, I grew up with, I had hippie parents, Mm. like super hippie parents who would have just loved it if I had made a career out of rice paper. And, but, (laughs) but I, because their, their work path had been so rambling. I mean, my mother had like four careers. Mm -hmm. She was a makeup artist and then she made wedding cakes Mm -hmm. and she ended her, you know, working life as a, as a brilliant caregiver, you know, Mm. but She's had so many different jobs. Yeah. My father was an actor and, you know, acting is is a very fickle profession. Yeah. And so he he's had a lot of ups and downs in his career. And I didn't want any of that instability. Yeah. I was just like, oh, right. no, no. Right. I, you know, and so teaching, there couldn't be anything more stable than teaching. Yeah, right. So I was drawn to it because of the stressors of my childhood, sure. you yeah. know, yeah. like I had creative parents, so I was not going to be creative. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> you know? In spite of having creative genes. Yeah, yeah. it was. It, so I kind of like anti rebelled and, yeah. and it bit me in the foot because, yeah. or the butt or wherever. Yeah. I just, I ended up having to finally say, you know what? I'm not going to be happy unless I play with color. So right. I'm finally going to, I'm just going to do it. Right. So luckily, yeah. luckily I jumped on the boat. So that gets to listening to your intuition, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Listening to your gut. Yep. Um, having the courage to listen to your gut and then act on it. Yep. Right. So having the awareness to listen to your gut and then the courage to act on what yeah. you're hearing. Yeah, you know? because I think we all have an incredibly powerful, useful, spot on interior voice that's telling us what's what. We all have that, but some of us are much better mm. at trusting and listening to that thing. Yeah. Some of us are like, oh yeah, I'm with you. Right. And then me, I was like, really? No way. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it, it's taken me a long time right. to come around to, oh yes, definitely. And you're not always going to get it right. 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 I mean, you know, like I, right. I've been, I look at my own life and I realized that there were times that, you know, I got it right. I listened yeah. and I acted and nailed it and yeah. it was the right thing. And then there are those con- those moments where you're, you know, your intuition is telling you one thing, but maybe it's not what you want to hear. Yeah. Or so you overwrite it or right. you try to fit, you know, you try to say, well, maybe I know best or that's not really happening. And so you go left when you should go right and it blows up in your face. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, those are, those, those can be, uh, those can be devastating when you don't They can, listen. but that's actually, that's one of the things, you know, I, I went through a phase in my career where I was deathly, and I mean deathly afraid of making mistakes. Like, I couldn't- What was that about? It was just, it was just about having to be perfect and get it right on the first time every time. Like, whether it Where was- Where did that come from? Was that, did that come from your parents? Did that come no, from your own? Was that no, self-imposed? Yeah. It was just, yeah. it was just my thing. And I just, I, I had a lot of stress and freaking out about like the running message that my, my head was playing was, you can't make a mistake. You can't make a mistake, which is like, 
such a dead end. Yeah. It, it just, it, it's such a paralytic. It's yeah. just going to completely yeah, stop you, sure. you know? And so I had to kind of retool that message and it's taken time, but now it's like, there, there are no mistakes. There's just incredibly valuable takeaways, mm. you know, like, oh, that didn't work. So now I'll do it this way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Like, yeah, make mistakes. Mistakes are the best learning tools on the planet. Yeah. I call it the price of an education. Yes. You know? I love that. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, if you're, You should be learning from these things. Right. 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 And, and, and most of them are very affordable. Yeah. You know, it's it's rare that you make a mistake that's that's so costly that, yeah. that you can't pay for it. Right. You know. Yeah, it might be um I mean perhaps the most costly thing is lost time, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a few things more yeah. valuable than your time. Right. Time's most valuable. Yep. Thing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the um struggles that I know a lot of uh artists have and professional creatives have and I'm wondering if you have a similar struggle is the expectations of clients and how the process works and the role of spec work mm -hmm. in winning new business, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, oh, well, we're asking for concept sketches, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the in the RFP process, mm -hmm. right? Right. We're, 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 you know, we want, we'd like to see what you would do, right. you know, versus them the client, you know, hiring based off of reputation or portfolio or right. what have you. And, and in some cases, some of the more egregious uh, examples of this is what I call the exploitation of artists when clients expect work done for pro bono or for free. Mm -hmm. And this happens a lot kind of in the visual art side, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, brands that will try to convince you to do work for exposure. Right. Yeah. You know, exposure bucks. Right. Well, you know, what what does the role of spec work play in your reality and and how you know, how are your clients in terms of of hiring you? Do they hire you based on your portfolio and your experience or do they expect to see some ideas before they take the leap? Well, that's a great question. Typically, I um I'm engaged based on word word of mouth and mm -hmm. recommendations mm -hmm. of uh, you know um, I've done you know client A's bathroom and now client B wants a bathroom yeah but and and my my favorite little cabin in the hills job that I'm doing right now just was a recommendation a friend mm -hmm. pointed me in the client's direction the most typical spec work that I do mm -hmm. are those initial meetings and walkthroughs where I do my best to deliver or convey how I would design the project, how I would create a concept, mm -hmm. what my process is. Mm -hmm. I try to help the client understand what their own scope is because mm -hmm. that's usually a, a huge issue is mm -hmm. they know they need stuff, but they don't know what it is they need. And and then I'll, I'll write up a proposal. And sometimes that proposal will have inspiration images in it so that they can understand the direction that I'm aiming towards. Yeah. One of my family's slogans, which came from my dad's acting career, but is, I think, useful for just about anyone in a creative endeavor, is give them what they want as cheaply as possible. Mm. Like, we don't have to sweat blood or bullets to give someone a taste or convey an expression mm -hmm. 
we can just take a sandbox and make a finger painting in it. Mm. And that can be a really powerful calling card. Yeah. You know, I think that learning how to present gestural calling cards Mm. that express our abilities, our intellect, our talent, but don't give the, 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 the whole show away. Yeah. That's the ticket, you know? And yeah, I can see where I, would I do a room in a show house for exposure? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with that. Mm -hmm. Would I do a whole house for exposure? I couldn't afford it. Yeah. You know, I think that, and you know, would I do a concept board to win a big job? Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a certain amount that you have to take a risk and say, I'm going to put a really bloody weekend in, I'm going to make an incredible presentation and maybe I'll get this thing, you know? And if it's a really big project, that's going to just be amazing and lead to a year of work or maybe a lifetime collaboration. Why not? Yeah. You know, and every time I do one of those, they end up paying off one way or another. Sometimes not in, you know, closing that particular deal, but I now have that in my back pocket. You know, it's one more elevator pitch that Mm -hmm. I've created, Mm -hmm. you know, and refining my pitch always is it's it's that's part of the it's part of the 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 requirement. You know, I need to be able to say who I am and what I do. And I'm always looking for a better way of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cutting through the clutter in a Mm -hmm. memorable way Mm -hmm. that is succinct enough for people to, you know, take in and remember. Yeah. In a compelling way. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, when, you know, like when you get put the hard question, like, well, what, what makes you special? What makes you different? You know, why you and not somebody else? You know, I could just say, well, because it's me. It's because I'm, there's only one of me, you know, but- how do I convey what that me is? Well, the question, yeah, the, there's a question that I got years ago that still haunts me to this day. I mean, it. Mm-hmm. I say haunt, you yeah. know, uh, jokingly, because it is. Uh, it was actually very helpful. I was young, you know, I was what twenty seven or twenty eight, and and I was working. Uh, I was uh, working for a design agency. We were doing um, consumer goods, branded packaging primarily and you know we had worked with some of the biggest brands in the world you know uh biggest companies in the world you know but the challenge of course was that a lot of those projects were under nda you can't talk about them you know all that stuff right and i called uh this you know i forget his name now but he was you know the vp of basically vice president of packaging design mm-hmm. probably for brown foreman and brown foreman owned jack daniels and corbell and you know some big liquor brands Mm -hmm. so i call this guy and you know i laugh now because you know here was a guy who's probably i'm guessing he was in his 50s you know uh here's this 27 year old you know punk kid calling him up trying to sell his wares and i'm on the phone with this guy and i'm in the little in my little pitch you know telling him who we are whatever and he just stops me cold and he said scott he goes i i don't care about any of that. He goes, uh, I only care about the answer to one question. And I don't, you know, based on this answer, I will hire you. He's like, I don't care how big you are or small you are, you know, how accomplished you are, how many awards, doesn't matter to me. 
All I want to know is what is the one thing that I can get from you that I can't get anywhere else in the world? Like, what are you giving me that I can't get anywhere else in the world? And that was just cut, you know, cut right to it. Right. Right. And, um, and I think that that's, that's kind of the core of what you're getting at. It's like, Mm -hmm. how do you tell your story that is, that resonates in a, in a unique way, but that is true to you. Right. right? And meaningful to the, the person that you're, that you're pitching to. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's. So, I know that's almost an unanswerable question. Well, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, and you know, I, I, <laughs> in the moment, you know, when you're young and scared, right. You, you, you know, perhaps I should have said, uh, uh, you know, that's great. You know, let me, let me, you know, duly noted, let me get back to you. I'll call you, you know, mm-hmm. let, let's, let's set up a meeting. But in the moment I said, I said, well, you know, the answer I give you is, is our team. I mean, you can't get our team anywhere else, you know, like the, the, the minds and the intellects that we have working here are, you know, unique in the world, you mm-hmm. know, and you have Ian Webb, you have Felix Scarlett, you have Ronald DeVlam, you have, you know, so I sort of went that way, but that, mm-hmm. that too was a cop out because anybody can say that shit, you know what I mean? It's, like, it's, like, it's just like, ah, yeah. you know, I can stop tidal waves. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get that anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Nina, I am so grateful that you came and uh, sat down with me today and talked about uh, your work and your career. And I hope that uh, I, I know that there was goodness in there for the for that uh, listener out there uh, inspired or interested in interior design. Where can people find you? I am at ninahikendesigns.com. And uh, you just... If you go to my website, ninahikendesigns.com, you can uh, email me through the mm-hmm. website. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm local Los Angeles girl, mm-hmm. and I have a car. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, that little uh, blurb there totally reminded me of something I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Because it, this gets back to business development and how you get your clients and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of innovation happening in technology in terms of connecting buyers and sellers together in the creative space. You know, one of those apps these days in your space uh, has been an app called House, H-O-U-Z-Z. Yep. Do you use that app? Has that been helpful to you? And if so, and if, you know, why? And if not, why? I love all the design apps. Um, I use them as collaborative tools with Mm -hmm. my clients. Mm for making uh, concept albums Mm -hmm. so that we understand what direction the project's going. Mm -hmm. I don't use them as marketing for myself, Mm -hmm. but I could send a client to my album collection Mm -hmm. so that they could see what my sensibility and my taste is. Mm -hmm. I find that the the specific marketing contracts are pretty pricey. Mm -hmm. And I just don't find it effective, especially when my work comes from word of mouth. It's, yes, right. you know, I don't know that many people that would hire a designer without some kind of personal recommendation. Yeah. It's such a, it's a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. I, you know, would you like, I don't know, would you hire a lawyer just off the website? Mm. It, you you might want to- I typically somebody... find my lawyers off bu- uh, bus benches. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah, right. you know, so, and you know, Instagram, house, yeah. there are ways to- have sort of a working, sort of very 
a live portfolio mm-hmm. of ideas. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's what they're great for. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I just, I had to ask. I'm yeah. curious because I sure. I'm uh I'm impressed by that app because it just it feels like they're doing a good job of of using content to market services. Yes. Um, very but much. But it's interesting. It sounds like maybe the if you buy into the marketing thing, there's it's it can get costly. It's pricey. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's very it's very expensive. It's it's hundreds of dollars a month. Wow. One of the keys is that you you really have to have quite a serious body of work uh, photographed. Yeah, right. and honestly, I'm not so great at that. I I need to get better. Well, that's at, a whole. You know, but you know, I mean, join the fucking club, right? Yeah. I mean, how many artists I know don't photograph their work? Yeah, you know, which um, is a crime. It's like it's, ah! right. Well, yeah. and it, to be fair though, right, mm-hmm. to do it properly, which mm-hmm. we want to do it properly. Yeah, it's expensive. It is. It is, and that's kind of and. It takes a great deal of planning, yeah. and and for 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 my work, I have to invade someone's space. Yeah, sure. You know, and that's a big deal. Yeah. So I have a lot of projects in the queue that need photographing, and you know, maybe if I had all of those, you know, on disc, I would maybe try a year of house. Uh, I have a I have a colleague that I went to design school with who is really successful on house mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. has a wonderful portfolio there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I'm searching for a particular kind of project, or I'm trying to show a client an example of something, my friend's stuff comes up as like what I'm looking yes, for yes, all the time. I'm like, yes. oh, there's Michael again. Awesome. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. So life is life is funny. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And only a few degrees away from you. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> yes. Yeah. It's sometimes less than that. Yep. Nina Hyken. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was amazing. Was it fun? It was so much fun. Will you come back? I will come back. All right. Yes. I'll look forward to it. All new experiences. Sounds good. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Art Official. We appreciate the support. Sourdough out.